Hello, good afternoon. This is the Hermit from Lock Ear, J. Michael Jones. This podcast today that I'm doing,、um, I've titled "How Did We Get Here," and it's a brief history, a brief view of the,、uh, a review of the history of Western civilization from a philosophical perspective. And I'm going to explain why this interests me,、uh, and then we'll get into it. But this is going to be like a drive-by. Uh, quick uh, look at how we in the West find truth, and I, it's very interesting.、Um, I will go back and briefly mention again my story without getting wasting too much time. In 1990, I'd grown up in the Bible Belt in、uh, Appalachia, in in the U.S., and I won't go through the circumstance, but I had a sudden realization that. My culture had been lying to me, and it was almost like I woke up one day and realized I was in the Truman Show. That everything I had thought and believed was not true, or a lot of it wasn't. So it put me—I call it my Descartes, like Rene Descartes moment, where I began to doubt everything. And I spent the next ten years with the pursuit of truth,、um, and that's been a passion of mine ever since then. Now, during that time in the '90s, I came across a uh, uh, a gentleman who、uh, I had kno- known before, but I was reacquainted with、uh, Francis Schaeffer, who some see as the greatest theologian, Christian theologian of the 20th century. Now, I like him very much. He's now, of course, deceased.、Um, I actually got to know some of his family、uh, as I moved to Rochester, Minnesota, where he was, where he died, where Francis Schaeffer died. I don't believe, or I think he's made some mistakes、um, in in some of his ideas. But he introduced me to the pursuit of truth and and philosophy as as a method to reaching truth, and and especially the history of philosophy. And his very basic book, I think he wrote in the '60s, was called Escape from Reason, that does the same thing that I'm doing today, but in a little bit different way,、uh, a bird's eye view of how we pursue truth in the West. Now, this has been a passion of mine for a personal. Reason of me trying to find truth, but also、uh, I believe that at least in America, maybe the entire world, or at least the Western world, we're on the cusp of yet another small dark ages、uh, where there's a loss of truth and a loss of knowing how to pursue truth. Now I will pause for just a moment to make sure you understand when I'm talking about truth, I'm talking about the classic Greek concept of truth, of that which is consistent with reality. So I'm not talking about a religious truth or a personal truth, because now there's all kinds of cottage industries of truth, especially in the day of、uh, of media and the internet, where where anyone can make up their own truth. And some people say, "Is that what you're doing right now?" No, it's it's really not. I'm not coming coming up with some brand new idea. I think. Anyone who studied history seriously, like I'm talking about a professor in college, if they listened to me,、uh, I'd, I'd be embarrassed for one. But if they listened to me, I don't think they would hear anything that's not accurate.、Uh, they would probably criticize me for oversimplifying this. It is very, very complicated,、uh, and I'm going to simplify it、uh, just for the sake of the listener here. Now, one thing I want to mention、um, for those who study culture and and philosophy. That the way that our, say, our Truman world that I was in, the way that world is built, our cultural world, 
it comes from two sources. It comes from the, the grassroots level where people have certain experiences and then start to believe certain things based on that experiences. And then that works its way up through society. But more often, at least through big periods of time in our history, it starts at the top where a philosopher, a theologian, philosopher, even sometimes scientist, a psychologist, I mean, think like impact that Freud had back in the 50s, um, will do writings and, and sit around and think and put things together. And over a long period of time, sometimes 300 years, it will filter down through society and then it becomes part of the building blocks of that culture and people assume whatever the idea is truth without really understanding it. I have found that history is marvelous. It is a window into truth. The way we know about our personal selves is looking at our personal history, our family history, our community history, our national history, and our world history. And there's a problem now, it's just a, it, I think it's more of a psychological problem of revisionist history, where we like to create or believe a history about ourselves or our community or our country that's not true, that makes us feel good. And I certainly don't want to be involved with any kind of revisionist history. Uh, I will say that I, I am a Christian, but not in the stereotype of what most people would think. I left Christianity and came back to it at a very different place, a very simple uh, Christianity. But I'm critical, quite critical of the church uh, because it is critical worthy. Uh, there's lots of good people, uh, lots of art, lots of beauty that came out of the church, but there's lots of horrible things of death, suffering, abuse, lies, and power grabbing. Uh, and I'm very honest about that. Uh, I had a very gracious church that I was involved with in Minnesota that allowed me to teach two courses, I think two, I've taught two, I can't remember they're both there, on the history of church. And I, I made people uneasy, and even there I held back and not, didn't really describe, like the, the, the Thirty Years' War in Europe, the, you know, all the atrocities that the church has done. Uh, but again, you know, there's good people. The problem, um, well, I'm not going to go anymore onto that because <laughs> I'm going to waste too much time. I'd, I like to do these sessions uh, without practice, just one time through, because uh, that saves time for me and and I don't want to uh, ramble <laughs> too much. So let's go back. I'm going to be looking at Western civilization and our culture and how we came up with truth and how we pursue truth. Now, I'm going to pick a time because you could go back. Uh, I really love the Neanderthal. I love studying about them. Uh, unfortunately, they don't have a written language that we have any clue what they were thinking. We can see it in their art. Uh, that they, they had a, a concept that life was bigger than just the mundane. They, they had ritual burials. Um, and then when they threw their spears, they used one stick to throw another stick to get the maximum speed of their spear to go into a woolly mammoth. So they had some ideas of math and mechanics and, and those things. But they didn't have a written history, so we can't really study thoughts there, nor can we from the Homo erectus uh, 300,000 years uh, because most of the time they did not have the written history. So then we have to start where there is written history. So then we would start with uh, the Egyptians and hieroglyphics which go back probably 4,500 years ago, maybe 5,000 years ago, I can't remember. 
I lived in Egypt and was around those hieroglyphics every day. Uh, I mean, if you go out in the, in the desert in Egypt by yourself and look at a big rock, you'll often find hieroglyphics written on it from that culture. Uh, but they didn't write a lot about philosophical ideas or the pursuit of truth. They talked a lot about battles, about kings, about sometimes they talk about how they constructed things. Um, sometimes they talk about math. That was, that's, that's on the edge of pursuing truth. And I'll just pause here and say that the word math is from the Latin word mathematicus, which I think literally means uh, the pursuit of learning or the process of learning. And it's very close to our word philosophy, which is the love of knowledge or the love of learning. So we can't draw from the Egyptians. And then in Mesopotamia, uh, there was a cuneiform writing using a sharp stick in clay. And again, that was mostly devoted to commercial issues. I don't know of any philosophical thoughts put down, and there could be, uh, I just don't know about them. Uh, so therefore, I don't go back that far. So I have to start with the Greeks. The Greeks had the first written language where they could capture ideas and, and the pursuit of truth, and I'm going to start there. Uh, and then I thought about in the Greeks where to start. Uh, I, the place I'd like to start, well, first, of course, most people know about Greek mythology. The Greek mythologies came around probably 1500 years before Christ or longer, and it came through oral traditions, like the oral tradition about the stories about the Trojan Wars and about the uh, uh, Jason and the, uh, the uh, Agronauts, Agronauts? You know, uh, that were uh, around the Mediterranean in and in those stories, they started creating these bigger-than-life uh, creatures. I mean, it started out like Paul Bunyan in American history, but they took on a life of their own, these stories. So they became godlike, but not like the god that we think of in either Christianity, Islam, or Judaism. It was gods more like Marvel Comics of superpowers. Now, in early uh, Greek times, now I'm getting up to about the time of 570. That was the, around the time of the birth of Pythagoras. They were observing that in the universe, there is this message. It's, I mean, this is incredible. There's this message written in the universe that's orderly, that, that we call math. But it, it's just, well, or you could call it physics. Uh, and they started to observe this. Now, there is a debate in the mathematical world if math is discovered by humans that was always there, or did humans just create it in their own minds? Most mathematicians uh, believe that um, it's, it was there, and we just discovered it, and that's what I believe. Uh, some mystics, uh, especially like Hindu, Buddhists, who see our life here on Earth as uh, uh, a mirage anyway, say that math is just a human construct that's been imposed on nature. But the Greeks observed that there was something in enormous going on in the universe, that there was order. There was a written order, precise order, that we would now think of as physics or math. So it became a problem because that order was bigger than their gods. So there was a saying at the time, you know, do the gods have to submit to the fates? And the fate you could describe in statistics or probabilities of mathematics in the universe. Or do the gods control the fates? And that was an argument, um, an argument in Athens and around the Greek world. But Pythagoras, he observed this and he was, he, so he started out as a mathematician and, and there's a, well, I was going to tell a story. Well, there is a story I'll tell about. <laughs> there's an island Samos uh, off the coast of uh, Turkey 
And uh, oh, it was it was during the time of Pythagoras, so around probably 550 BC. This it was one of the biggest cities in the world at the time, was sort of the center of Western civilization in some ways. But the city was limited that they couldn't get enough fresh drinking water on the other side of the mountains. I think it's, mountains are called Castro. There was a spring that could supply the city, but they had to figure a way to get the, the water from the valley on the other side of the Castro range into the city. So Pythagoras had just left, but his friends, all of these math, mathematic thinkers, you know, today it's, you don't see math and philosophy on the same page, but they really were on the same page. So these thinkers said, well, the universe, and we call, it, we call this thing metaphysics in, in, in philosophy, this idea of, what, of the physical world, uh, that the, in the, in the meta, metaphysical idea of the physical world, there is a way to use mathematics to get the water through the mountain by measuring, using tra uh, trig and, and, and all these things to, to, to tunnel. And they tunneled from both sides of the mountain and met almost exactly in the middle. Not quite exactly, but close. But Pythagoras sailed on. I think he was having, I forgot what trouble he was having there in Samos, but he sailed on. Uh, I think he ended up in Italy. Uh, Sicily or Italy, I can't remember, someone will know. But Pythagoras started writing and became very interested in this other world of perfection, world of ideals, not idea, I-D-A, but I-D-E-A-L-S, in a perfect world of mathematics. For example, you can have a square in our world, a con concept of a square, but in this perfect world, the square was absolutely perfect uh, all sides the same, the angles exactly 90 degrees. And you could have cons ideas such as uh, infinity. Uh, another thing that in, in this world, we can think of those things, but we can't create it on paper or even in modern uh, computers, we can't create uh, drawings of absolutely perfect squares. So then the next big thing that happened in this in Athens now now we're just we're only about a hundred years later after Pythagoras that Socrates was born and Socrates and I identify with him he simply had a, a desire to find truth and his way of finding truth was to question things don't just believe it because the culture said so and as an when I was a, uh, I grew up I think I mentioned this in this podcast as a, in the Bible Belt and was a very staunch evangelical was even an evangelical missionary in the Middle East to Muslims, uh, that uh, Socrates uh, said, you need to question these things. Question, you know, question, does God exist? Question. So Socrates got in trouble for telling the youth they should question what the government was telling them. And he was uh, forced to drink poison and died. But he did set up the school of Athens. And his next student that took over the school was Plato. And Plato, I'm going to talk a lot about Plato and, and, and then Plato's student Aristotle. But Plato had been reading the mathematician Pythagoras material. And Plato became very intrigued by this idea that this physical world that we're in is not real or it's not the most real, that the real uh, is in the heavens uh, or in this ideal world of where all math is perfect, that here we see a table as only as a... Uh, Cons, a, 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 I'm trying to think the best word to use, an image of a table or a shadow. Well, that's the word that Plato himself used in his uh, 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 allegory of the cave, that in this world are only shadows of the real world, which we can't see directly. It's in this um, uh, up 
well, he called it the ether, but it's up in space, this world where there's perfection. Well, then Aristotle came along, his student, and Aristotle said, you know what, this is Plato's going the wrong way here. This physical world that we live in is real. And the mathematics of this world are, the, the mathematics, they're real. Uh, and you can use reason and to discover this world and make sense of it. And Plato said, well, no, no, this world is not that important, blah, blah, blah. Well, and so then that, that brings us up to just before the time of Christ, I'm gonna mention one more huge development. And that was Alexander the Great. I think he was born about 350 something. Um, and Alexander did not live long, but he was, I, I read the autobiography, not the auto, <laughs> the biography of Alexander the Great. And even as a kid, he was incredibly brave. And, but he was able to take the Greek culture all the way to the Indus River in Pakistan and claim this whole area for the Greek culture, all of Persia, uh, Egypt. Um, and through that, he had a tremendous influence of these Greek thinkers that otherwise were more confined to Athens than what we now know as Greece. <clears throat> but then I'm going to talk about the rise of Christianity. So we know the dates for that. I mean, I would say 30 ADs when the church, the Christian church really started. Now, when I talk about, uh, I left my Christian roots and came back to Christianity in a very different place in a very simple uh, I call it a natural Christianity, and I, I draw a lot from the teachings of Christ, and the teachings of Christ were very simple, and his pursuit was love, justice, um, against hypocrisy, against lying, a pursuit of truth. But both in his words and in the words of Paul, his, his major church leader after him, and we wrote the Romans, was not to mix up Christianity with other philosophies, either other religions, other other secular philosophies, or politics, or any of those things. Keep them separate. Christianity is a very jealous uh, thought system. But unfortunately, from day one, the church has always done that, just about always. From day one, the Christians uh, around the Middle East, around Israel, what we now know as Israel, Palestine, um, it was a Greek culture at the time, Greco-Roman. It had become Roman, uh, the central capital moving from Athens to Rome as it changed, but still the same culture, uh, were heavily influenced by not only the polytheistic ideas of the gods, the Marvel, the Marvel comics type gods, but also the big ideas of Plato and Aristotle were the two competing visions of the universe. Plato saying this world is a, a mirage, not that important, that the real world um, uh, is in another place. Well, the early Christians started to adopt the Platonic way of looking at this, uh, that this world is, and especially the Gnostic, this world is not important, that the only thing that is important is what they would call the spiritual, but they'd also include all the emotions as spiritual, as something supernatural. Now, uh, the early church fathers uh, who wrote or got together with the great creeds the first few hundred years saw this as a real problem, and it was a real problem. Because if you claim that Jesus is God and he is fully man, then that's impossible with a platonic model because you can't be both in this perfect place of the ideals and in this crummy, nasty place that we call earth. And some of the Gnostics even said this earth was created by Satan, that this was an evil world. So they started having this thing that either Jesus was not God, he was a dirty man, or 
he was God and was only on earth as a hologram or a ghost. But the church did their great creeds in the first few hundred years trying to stop this idea. Now, this is where it gets interesting. I used to teach a class on church history before I had my uh, Descartes moment. And I taught that the next step was when Constantine, it was in 2000, I mean 2000, 200 and, I'm sorry, 300 and either 12 or 13, that Constantine uh, became, said he became a Christian and became the emperor of Rome. Uh, that that was a good thing. But now looking back, I think it was a bad thing. I think that church history is full of bad things uh, that did not benefit the church. Uh, and that was one of those. Because I see Constantine view of Christianity and adopting it as the official religion as a lust for power. And I'm very interested in Constantine. I've read a lot of stuff about him. I spent a couple of weeks in Istanbul just studying the city that he, that he established. Uh, under his name, Constantinople. But I think Constantine's political will was the same as Donald Trump, who embraced the evangelicals. He did, I don't think Donald Trump gives a rat's ass about Christianity, nor do I think that Constantine did. But it was a thing of, of getting the masses on your side by appealing to their growing religious beliefs. And that's what both men did. So then what happened was these church leaders who are running for their lives under persecution suddenly are sitting in the throne room with Constantine and all this power is coming to them. And I think just like normal humans, they have this lust for power and they found that now it's going to be convenient if we adopt platonic view of, of truth. And that is this world is totally insignificant. The only world that's significant is what they would call the spiritual Francis Schaeffer deals with this very well in his book, Escape from Reason, where he calls the upper story uh, uh, grace and the lower story nature. But this is what he's talking about, that uh, the church switched from saying that God created this world, this world is very important, reason is important, emotions are important, um, all these things are great, to this idea that emotions are totally unimportant unless you relabel them as spiritual. You can't go into a service and have, ooh, that was a very emotional experience. No one liked that. You have to go and say, oh, God really spoke to me. You have to change the language because the emotions are part of the human body and have no value. So then we have the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages is where humans adopted this church-imposed platonic view that the only thing mattered was the spiritual, and they did it for a very convenient reason, that it empowered the church with money, with glory. Uh, and if they had the keys to heaven, and they were the only ones who had the keys to heaven, then I'm sorry, you were screwed unless you did everything the church told you to. And I could say, oh, okay, then in my Protestant friends would say, then came the Reformation, and they fixed all that. No, not really. Uh, <laughs> the Reformation came, Protestant Church has done the same thing. Till this day, the real driving force, I believe, behind the white evangelicals' adoption of the Republican Party as their basis for truth is power, the lust for power, the same as the Catholic Church did back in those days. So that's what I'm talking about. When I talk about church history, people get offended, but please don't write me nasty messages. <laughs> if, you don't, if you don't want to believe what I said, that's fine. It doesn't bother me. Uh, anyway, so... So then that led to the Dark Ages, and society in Europe really plummeted. Science ended, art ended, not completely, but most, for the most part, because this world had no importance. 
Then the Medici family, I wish I could tell their story. It's fascinating. I love the Medici family of Florence. But they started saying, you know, something is wrong here. Let's see if we can fix it. So to make a long story short, and it's a fascinating story, they started going back to the original Greek text, looking for a basis of truth for the new, the new Italian society or the society of Florence. And they knew that the church was following Plato. And if you think I'm making this up, look at the, I think it's Raphael's painting hanging in the Vatican's library. At the center of that painting is Aristotle and Plato. And it shows this tension that I've been talking about. The church was very aware that they were choosing Plato over Aristotle. So uh, the Medici family considered Aristotle as their new patron saint of philosophy, but decided then, and I, I would love to tell the story about that, but I don't have time. Uh, they decided to follow, continue following Plato, but to switch the, this, this universe of ideals from the Christian spiritual to the human emotions. So then it becomes art is beautiful, food, you know, good tasting food, experience, dreams, lust, all these things became this world of the ideals where it had been controlled by the church. That's what happened south of the Alps. North of the Alps, and that's another fascinating story, the teachings of Aristotle made it into Northern Europe through the Moors in Spain, the, the Muslims. And Aristotle was back, and I'm, I'm more of an Aristotle guy than a, uh, Plato guy. Aristotle sees this world as very real, uh, that the laws of physics and math are very important, that our human bodies are important, our emotions are very important. Uh, and this became the basis then in Northern Europe. So the Southern Europe, the Renaissance was built on the new vision of Plato. In Northern Europe, it was, it was the Enlightenment was built on a new vision of Aristotle. So Aristotle ushered in reason to places like Germany and Austria and England and these places, France, definitely France, and science took off like crazy. And the arts had already taken off in Italy under the Platonic view, but now with Aristotle, science is taking off and it's making life easier and easier and people are living longer and healthier and, and all these good things are happening. And people during the Enlightenment began to trust reason more and more. And I make it clear, I'm a great believer in reason. I see myself, you know, talking about Christianity, I see myself as a rational Christian in the order of Isaac Newton, uh, who lived at the height of the Renaissance or the Enlightenment. But the problem is, uh, and this is what they didn't understand in the Enlightenment, is that reason is finite, that it cannot give meaning and it cannot give morals to humanity. And therefore what happened using, riding on the backs of reason, uh, there was the French Revolution that was bad. Then the American Civil War was terrible. Uh, uh, and then they started bringing technology uh, to make death worse. And then of course, World War I and World War II were incredibly awful, where technology was used to murder people by the millions. So after this period of time, I mentioned that ideas float down through society over hundreds of years. It became that uh, reason is starting to look be looked down upon because it failed us. And it did fail us because it wasn't clearly understood that reason has limits. Reason in, in their enlightenment was seen as the answer to all of our problems and it did not answer our problems. And therefore now 
in the 21st century, reason has been discarded more and more, especially in the age of uh, of online media, you know, <laughs> podcasts like I'm doing, uh, TV shows, things where people can just make stuff up, and and reason doesn't have any meaning anymore. Um, I mean, it's not going to be as bad as the previous dark ages, but I'm, I just see that as what's happening in, in today. So I'm going to talk about Christianity at the end. I know everybody comes and says, not Christian. It doesn't matter to me. Uh, <laughs> it makes you feel any better. Uh, most of the evangelicals that would come here would, would not consider me a Christian, and I don't know why. Uh, I, I won't go into that. But anyway, uh, I'm seeing at the present within the Christian church in America, uh, I think so in Europe too. I don't know Europe so well. There's two things happening. On the right side, the conservative side, um, they started out, and again, I recommend this book, uh, Jesus Christ and John Wayne, to look at the history of the modern evangelical. But they have drifted into a place now that they have merged Christianity with Republican politics to the point that there's no difference. There's no daylight between them. Whatever Fox News says, whatever Republican Party says, they believe even all the conspiracy theories, everything. On the left side of the church, for the sake of trying to find peace, uh, they uh, the liberal side of the church has gotten rid of the idea of absolute truth, the merging of all world religions, such as Buddhism, Hinduism, into Christianity. And I know good Buddhists that would just cringe at what, what the New Age Christianity is doing, but it's a total loss of truth. And I hear over and over, there's no such thing as truth. Anyway, that concludes this podcast, and I may uh, come back to this topic in a, in a different angle later on. Thanks so much for listening.